Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following content is explicit. It's Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. When the Amazon Union on Staten Island voted itself into existence last month, there was an air of celebration bordering on the seismic for much of the union's support of media. It may be one of the biggest wins for organized labor in a generation. And it was a battle that was fought tooth and nail. Chris Hayes there. The president and founder of the Amazon labor union, Chris Smalls, was booked on every show from Chapo Trap House to Tucker Carlson. Tucker liked him because he stuck it to Bezos and there was a perceived AOC snub in the air. Bloomberg's Emily Chang asked an expert to assess the hugeness of this one. Amazon is the second largest private employer in the country, so this could potentially be huge. Just how remarkable do you think this is? Syracuse professor Lynn Vincent gave it uh, about a huge on a scale of huge to huge. Amazon were the untouchable giants. And now they're not so untouchable. It's still an uphill climb for other Amazon distribution centers and other organizations, but the momentum is there. Former Labor Secretary Robert Reich used a specific adjective. Uh, Ari, this is a huge deal. This is the biggest labor victory in the last 30 years. Uh, I want to congratulate Christian Smalls and all of the workers at the Amazon warehouse, Uh, but it goes far beyond Uh, the Amazon warehouse. It actually didn't even go to the second Amazon warehouse, at least not yet. Because this week there was another vote tally of a union drive in another Staten Island, New York facility. The results were 380 of the 1,600 eligible voters were for a union and 618 were against as MSNBC reported. Uh, But the organizers are incredibly disappointed. You know, one told me that obviously this is a big disappointment on the day right after May Day. Disappointed over the disappointment on the day after May Day. But you know who did bail out? The news media. So unlike the results of the last vote, the successful one, which were on the front page of the New York Times and the front page of the New York Times the day after the vote in the style section of the New York Times covering Chris Small's sweatsuits, yes, really, the results of this failed vote occasioned not one front page article, not one made news section article. It was covered in the business section and PR displayed similar coverage. Eight stories were aired about the successful vote, one reporting of the failed vote. Not only does success beat failure in the news, possibility beats reality. Before last year's Amazon union vote in Bessemer, Alabama, NPR filed 16 stories after the 
Union vote lost. There were five stories. Many of those focused on the union's allegations of wrongdoing. Fair enough. So there was a redo vote, which occurred this year and wasn't really covered. But you got to forgive that one because that Alabama redo vote was counted on the same day as the Staten Island successful vote. I understand the definition of news. It is that which is new. Amazon never had a union, and then they got one that is new, that is news, that deserved coverage. Amazon losing unionization votes, uh, it's usual, so it's less newsy. But this really isn't about quantity. Qualitatively, you heard the Chris Hayes clip, hopeful, celebratory, no problem. Chris is an opinion journalist. He's pro-union. Be happy, Chris. But his tone matched mm, just about everywhere this side of the Wall Street Journal in ways that I wouldn't claim with issues where the media is accused of bias. On this one, the media, the mainstream media, mostly or all made up of unionized workers, they're clearly in the bag for the union. It shows up in a few ways, but not only in ways of tone and cheerleading and glowing stories of the little guy who beats the behemoth, which I agree, that's a really good piece. It belongs in the coverage mix. But there's no credence given to the idea that the workers who voted against the union may be voting their actual self-interest. True, Amazon was able to pressure them and subject them to countless mandatory instruction sessions, but their vote is their vote. A consumer of 95% of the coverage would never get the idea that this was a debate where a worker might actually and accurately perceive that paying dues to a union was not worth the price of giving up whatever Amazon paid them without a union. I wonder if retiring New York Times editor Dean Bacay would defend his paper's coverage is simply straight down the line because not all their coverage is nor has to be. You wouldn't and shouldn't get the idea from the New York Times that Marine Le Pen's candidacy was just as legitimate as Emmanuel Macron's. Le Pen was alarmingly far right. It was important for the newspaper to make that clear to the readers. Maybe the Times would honestly say, you know, I really don't think we were giving that kind of impression with the union drive. But I read it. I read it all. Their rooting interests were clear. I guess it's hard. You have beats that you have to staff with humans, and almost all the humans available to staff those beats have clear sympathies. So it winds up that you read coverage of union drives or hear coverage of union drives like you read or hear coverage of a New York Knicks playoff drive. I'm not particularly rooting for any side in this story, by the way. I'm just eager to see what happens. But I am having to read defensively and without giving full trust and credence to the news outlets that I turn to for coverage. So I really do want to see what happens, but I really want to trust that what I'm seeing is the accurate picture. On the show today, I spiel about the best messaging about our probably evaporating abortion rights. But first, it's been almost two years since the murder of George Floyd and the protests afterwards calling for police reform. We have been checking in with some civil rights groups and activists to see what those reform movements actually achieved. Next up, one of the most important civil rights organizations in U.S. history, the Urban League, represented here by their senior vice president for equitable justice and strategic initiatives, Jerrica Richardson, joins me next.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The National Urban League was started in 1910 and has become one of America's premier civil rights organization. I personally love the National Urban League. They have been involved in uh, advocating for reform in policing, which is part of our ongoing series here on The Gist. And central to those efforts is Jerrica Richardson. She's the senior vice president of Equitable Justice, where she leads the Urban League's strategic work on civic engagement, police reform, criminal justice reform, and justice-related work, what we're talking about all the time and what I'm very interested in. Ms. Richardson, counselor, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. How long have you worked at the Urban League? Uh, A little over a year and a half. Um, It's been an an incredible journey so far. I joined in September of 2020. Yeah, and I read your bio, and I know that you worked on the New York City Civilian Complaint Review Board, which we're going to get to that, But your, and then you have a previous background in media, but you've been in the field of trying to advocate for policing reform for a while, is that right? Yes, um, you know, I had the opportunity to serve on the New York City Civilian Complaint Review Board um, as their senior advisor and then also a deputy executive director. And, you know, I think police accountability has been an issue that we have been struggling with for so long. Uh, I think post, you know, the tragic deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, that we kind of saw a change in uh, what was happening in this country. And it really felt like there was awakening and more focus on this issue. I think that has been needed for so long. So I feel privileged to have been doing that work at that time at the Civilian Complaint Review Board. And then having the opportunity to lead this brand new division at the National Urban League, which was essentially birthed through the social justice uprising of 2020. Yes, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. You've been doing the work for a long time, and it must be a Sisyphean task pushing that boulder up the hill. And then in 2020, after those events and the massive protests, you must have felt like, I don't know if wind was at your back, but certainly there were many more people cheering you. But The rock didn't get any smaller and the mountain didn't get any steeper, to torture the analogy a little bit. So what did the attention and focus do to aid the efforts of achieving actual reform? Well, I will say that there has been an increase in transparency. Uh, You saw after that event uh, that there were more cities and localities across the country that were adopting body-worn cameras. You know, it's been a thing that we've been talking about for several administrations, right, you know, dating all the way back to the Obama administration. And so there were cities, some cities were adopting these policies, others weren't, which really created a problem that you could be in one jurisdiction and have this measure of transparency and you can be, and then you can cross a city line or a state line and have the same exact incident occur, but not have this, the same type of information and recourse to really help you in that. Right. A shooting in Chicago is documented in body cams in Philadelphia. They don't have the money for it. And I'm not saying they do. It's 
people, municipalities are strapped, but they don't have it. The officers who raided Breonna Taylor's home, the ones who went in first, no body cams might have been useful. Some of the officers who came in afterwards did, which seems, I guess, unlucky if your interest is justice. But what you're saying is absolutely true. So there's been more funding or more urgency to get body cams on all the police? There's definitely been more funding, but that funding has come as a result of the community demanding that there be transparency. Uh, And I think there was a a, a huge awareness uh, that folks didn't necessarily have before. And and we're now starting to see that those body-worn camera footage, uh, these bystander videos, are actually making it much easier um, to try officers. But again, I credit the pandemic. People really had to have this in their face Uh, and not have all the distractions of the world to recognize this problem that we are still dealing with in this country that's rooted in racism, that's rooted in power, that's rooted in control. Those challenges in this inequity in our justice system really, really were laid bare. Yes. And so in some instances, charges can be brought and have been brought, but it's rare It's in, you know, there's a professor, as I'm sure you know, who's been keeping track of all the uh, all the sworn officers who's ever been who've ever been put in jail for murder, manslaughter, excessive use of force. And it hasn't really, even though Derek Chauvin and all the other officers there have been sentenced, it really hasn't ticked up that much. And so to me, body cam footage, public demands. If it's a clear-cut case, you might be able to get a conviction. But as advocates will say, there are still reforms to be written and laws to be written. So that's what I'm asking about. What are the laws? What are the state legislatures and city councils that the Urban League is working with? And what are you advocating for reform? There's been a lot of movement in in various states uh, really asking for additional oversight where you have attorney attorney general's offices or you have states coming in to prosecute these cases instead of relying solely on the local jurisdictions. I think that helps. That's a piece of the puzzle. We've also seen a rise and more of investment in civilian review boards and giving civilian review boards more power and authority, authority to subpoena folks. I mean, the ultimate, um, I think, uh, effort in that space would to make sure that these civilian review boards also have final authority so that we are not asking the police to police themselves. I mean, the challenge in this country is that there is no national standards. You talked about the professor that is um, that is capturing and tracking all of these incidences and, and seeing what happens to them. There should be a database that exists that shows every single officer that has been you know, um, engaged in activity like this, what the result was, uh, if they were removed from the department, that information should be public information and it should be easily accessible. It should also be accessible to law law enforcement departments. Sometimes these folks get off and then get rehired somewhere else. So we're not addressing the problem. Similarly, the database that the Washington Post and now Samuel Sinyangwe, uh, he maintains a separate one of police shootings. It's ridiculous that there are no statistics on a national level about that. But I followed national politics for some time. And even though Barack Obama and Eric Holder wanted to institute or made decent efforts and to get more 
statistical accountability can immediately be undone if there is a different-minded president. So to some extent, this extremely important work just falls to, you know, activists and individuals and academics to do what our society should be doing. That is true. Yes, um, but we need to demand more. I mean, there was a George Floyd Justice and Policing Act with the National Urban League was at the table and actually a number of the policies that were in there came from our 10-point justice plan. We've expanded on that post-2020 into our 21 pillars for redefining public safety and restoring community trust. So there has been meaningful legislation introduced. There has been legislation that has been supported by families of victims, folks who have lost people to police violence, but we have not been able to get it across the finish line. And so there still remains an incredible amount of work that needs to be done. I will say that in addition to reforms that have popped up on the state and local level. Some have been successful in getting across the finish line and getting the support they needed. But oftentimes there is not as much bipartisan support on policing accountability issues as there may be on issues dealing with the criminal justice system uh, after folks have been incarcerated and are returning to the system. And that really has to change. We can't talk about restorative justice and only think about it from the framework of the end of the criminal justice system. We have to be laser focused in trying to prevent folks from having these interactions uh, that would land them in the criminal justice system oftentimes unjustly or unfairly. So uh, as a point of clarification, did the Urban League, so how the the justice reform bill went down in the Senate is it was sponsored by Cory Booker, Republicans led by Tim Scott had refused to pass that one and had a really watered down version that would have done some things. Did the Urban League support that version of the bill? We, We think it makes sense to get as much as we can Um, We have experienced, I think, time after time, there being incremental progress. Uh, We were supportive of of the bill in its original form. Um, We really want something transformative. You know, by the time um, others had gotten to the bill and there were, you know, there were a lot of negotiations, we felt that it had been watered down so much that it wouldn't, it would be, to be quite honest, disrespectful to the families and to the victims whose name would be on it and to the lives lost because it just didn't go far enough. This problem is not going away, but we have, I think, a huge responsibility to push for changes in our laws, both on the state, local, and also on the federal levels um, so that we won't continue to be having this conversation, Mike, um, that there really will be meaningful change Uh, and how these situations are addressed. So to go back to the bill that was in front of the Senate, um, I heard your answer. Um, I understand your answer that it would be an insult to the people who the Justice Act invoked to pass it and say, we have achieved justice. And so I want to ask, why was... and. Also, to underline the fact that we were discussing the importance of having good statistics and good accountability, and Tim Scott, sponsor Justice Act, would at least do that. Now, what it wouldn't do is ban qualified immunity. They said that was a red line. What it wouldn't do is uh, ban chokeholds. Um, So yeah, there was a lot, absolutely, and granted, there was a lot that it wouldn't do. But why look at that 
as not let's get a half a loaf in, if you can't get the whole loaf? Or was it more like it was a crumb, not a loaf, not half a loaf? I mean, I would I would probably say it was a crumb. I think the data and transparency is important. Uh, but we can also do data and transparency standalone bills. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to carry the name of George Floyd on it. If you're talking about chokeholds, that is essentially how George Floyd and Eric Garner lost their lives. The, the terms I can't breathe were said over and over again. And so I do think it flies in the face uh, of, I mean, just human decency to have a bill that talks about data and transparency, but doesn't include chokeholds with George Floyd's name on it. Let's be honest. Let's be real about that. Um, it is important that we move the needle. And there are times where we see change that and reform that kind of tinkers around the edges and the lines. And I would have been happy to support a data transparency bill. Uh, and I think the National Urban League would support a data and transparency bill, but it is inappropriate to put George Floyd's name on it, to put a Breonna Taylor's name on it. You, The bill actually needs to be symbolic of the issue it's addressing. And that uh, up, that updated version didn't address the some of the common issues that we are seeing in the community. Chokeholds are happening to this day uh, in, in an ordinary amount. So I think we can't be dismissive of that. Yes, data helps. But if you don't actually have real uh, measures and means to hold people accountable, you're not going to have the culture change that we need in this country. We'll be able to report on how bad it is, but we're not going to be able to do anything to actually punish those who are hurting those in our community. I think the last thing I want to ask you about is we've talked about reforms. You've mentioned reform. I've said reform. Is reform just advocating for the idea of reform as opposed to the newer and I would say more au courant idea of abolition? Is that in some ways, you know, a controversial stance within the police quote unquote reform movement? Well, I think it depends on who you ask. I think what's really important is we need to be asking the the question in this country about are the ways that we have done things in the past are they working? Uh, and and is it really the right response? I think there are folks in the abolition movement uh, that think um, the system itself is broken uh, and it wasn't designed to work the way that we all want it to. Uh, and I would agree with that. The system mm-hmm. is broken. It's right. not effective. It's not working. And so I think that's the reason you hear so much terminology about around reimagining or redefining um, because the way things are, is just is is not good enough. Uh, and I think we need to think differently about what safety in our communities mean, uh, both for civilians and law enforcement alike, uh, and really put the public back in public safety. So often, I think others are making decisions for the community, like I said, without community being at the table. Um, and so whether you're in the abolition movement or you're talking about reimagining, at the end of it, it's, it's uh, I think the commonality is the current system and just talking about advocacy for reform or what reforms are needed for, for, you know, for political sake is just not enough anymore. Jerrica Richardson is Senior Vice President of Equitable Justice for the National Urban League. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation, Mike. 
many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now the spiel. How the Supreme Court's abortion ruling should it come to pass will affect votes in public policy depends on two factors, how it affects voters and how voters perceive it affects them. The perception itself depends on many factors, not least of which is the question of what the laws will actually be. Different states, different laws. A lot of the conversation will occur among people in states where abortion will remain legal, and the conversation will tend towards the how important it is for abortion to stay legal for other women in other states. I'm not so much concerned about the message that might play well among citizens and voters where the rights have not been infringed. I'm thinking more about what's the right messaging for citizens whose vote can change things. There are some messages that work better than others. This is not a great message. As a female-bodied person, um, I am really scared uh, for other people like me and for the future of this country. That was San Franciscan Carolyn Hannon, as quoted on NPR. This is not a critique of Carolyn Hannon. She wasn't hired to be a spokesperson. Those are her genuine feelings. Her fear is justified. And I don't know how many swing voters are NPR listeners. But if activists who are intent on convincing others were to take note, I would direct them instead to a message like that of Deb Butler. In my lifetime, I don't recall the Supreme Court ever taking away individual liberties. In fact, they've been in the business of granting expansive liberty to our citizens. So this is a very disappointing day. Butler is a member of the House of Representatives in North Carolina, a state where the upcoming Senate race is rated a toss-up to lean right by the Cook Political Report. Butler skillfully frames this in a way that will strike voters in that election as unfair to them and their definitions of liberty. And she further emphasizes that it's wrong for a North Carolinian to have to travel out of state to claim rights that should be hers as a North Carolinian. We don't want any woman to have to suffer uh, and, and be discriminated against or to travel to another place to try to get the health care she deserves. Butler there quoted on WECT NBC's Wilmington, North Carolina affiliate. Another politician who knows what he's doing is Georgia House Minority Leader James Beverly. Here he is talking about how his state will have a very close gubernatorial election and his preferred candidate, Democrat Stacey Abrams, will better deliver on abortion rights. Because and then I think that reproductive freedom and reproductive health will go hand in hand with her administration. Beverly quoted on Macon's WMGT, I specifically went looking at local news because that is where persuadable voters form opinions. And the spokespeople that local news puts forward, be they professional, passionate amateur, or activist who just has a microphone shoved in her face, all those spokespeople have a chance to frame the issue in ways that work or ways that don't work so well. The people who are quoted are protesting literally to make their voices heard. That's what they say. We're here to make our voices heard. I say, you hear noise, you listen to ideas. Best to have the best ideas. The best message 
goes like this. This issue, abortion rights, is important to you. This new ruling affects your rights. Your rights are your rights. And this is a piece of health care that is a right. But when you turn abortion rights from a materialist concern, ooh, how does it affect me, about a service that you as an American are being denied, oh, that's not right, to a more abstract, non-materialist debate that affects others, the messaging suffers. Take this DC protester, Kimberly Mohair. And I am concerned. I'm concerned that specifically minority women do not have necessarily the same wealth that other people do have. And I'm concerned that people are going to start taking this into their own hands. We all know where what happened before this. There are illegal abortions, and illegal abortions means unsafe abortions. It means women, people that can get pregnant, are going to die. They might. Ireland had an abortion ban until 2018. Women there did not die. They traveled to England and performed self-administered medical abortions. It was isolating and unpleasant and not right, but why introduce a possibility that's speculative versus hammering home, they are taking away your rights and imperiling your health? Then there is the disparate impact argument. It has the quality of being both true and unpersuasive. Unpersuasive to the people in need of persuading. Voters who care about the disparate impact on marginalized communities already have plenty of examples to vote on. Disparate impact on marginalized communities when it comes to COVID deaths. Disparate impact in marginalized communities when it comes to imprisonment. Disparate impact on marginalized communities in education. Democrats are the disparate impact on marginalized communities people. I say they'd be better off if they were the, we're here for you people, but what are you going to do? I got to say, the disparate impact on marginalized communities when it comes to abortion, that's real, and it's also not really moving the needle. Then there's this related argument made by legal expert Kimberly Atkins Store on the Sisters-in-Law podcast. There's a lot of things. I can talk for days about some of the things that are in this opinion, including this idea that somehow he might be protecting unborn black children, yes. making a point that black, uh, more black fetuses are aborted, he knows nothing about maternal health care because the reason why abortion health care needs to be available is that black women are four to five times more likely to die during childbirth or before because of a lack of access to uh, prenatal care, which in some situations when it is threatening to a woman's life include abortion care. So he is actually putting people's, women's lives in danger, a disproportionate burden on black women. This ruling will affect black women disproportionately. Black women have abortions at higher rates, much higher rates than white women. Black women also have similarly higher maternal mortality rates. But I don't see why it's a winning argument. To be fair, Storr isn't saying this on a local newscast. Her podcast is more a niche audience, but I hear this argument in a lot of places. Yes, it is true that in 2020, according to the CDC, 352 white women died as a result of pregnancy complications and 293 black women in America died. And that's almost three times the rate of black women given their lesser representation in the population. But there are many good arguments for keeping abortion legal. It seems to me a less than effective argument is that we need to allow the approximately quarter of a million black women who get abortions to have access to that care because of the fewer than 300 black women who are victims of maternal mortality. 
the two don't exactly line up. Also, Hispanic women had lower rates of maternal mortality than white women. Does it follow that allowing Hispanic women to have access to legal abortion is less important? In this area, bad or merely unpersuasive arguments, it's not as important as a bad law. The fact of what the Supreme Court has done will have much more of an impact than phrasing and framing. But passionate pro-choice women and men who would love to see the Alito ruling reversed or rights recognized on the state level should realize that their messaging becomes part of the patchwork of conversation that makes the issue real and personal versus another battle in the culture wars. And it is a battle in the culture wars, but unlike grooming and the vast majority of CRT concerns, it is also real. And the more voters are made to feel the real, the better the argument works. Abortion rights are a useful, important right concerning women's health. They are being taken away from women. And the more that message gets out there, the more likely it is that those rights will somehow be restored. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca by turns quelled and fomented union sentiment within Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu depperu dupperu. And thanks for listening.